This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Ash Sarka, filling in for a poorly Michael Walker. And with me tonight is the always ill James Medway. I mean ill in a good way, James. Of course, uh, what else would you be talking about here? But very nice (laughs) to see you again, Ash. Nice to see you. And coming up later tonight, Labour is in turmoil again over anti-Semitism, Rishi Sunak's car crash appearance on a GB News Q&A, and there's Donald Trump's concerning message to NATO. Stay tuned to all of that. Let's go to our first story. It's less than two weeks before the voters of Rochdale go to the polls for a by-election, and Labour are in turmoil again. Last night, the party were forced to withdraw their support for candidate Azhar Ali. As you'll probably recall, Azhar Ali had come under fire for comments he made alleging that Israel had deliberately allowed the October 7th attacks to go ahead so that they could justify an invasion of Gaza. All day yesterday, senior Labour figures and shadow cabinet members toured the broadcast studios affirming the party's support for Azhar Ali. They insisted that his comments were a lapse in judgment, totally unlike him, and he'd simply fallen for an online conspiracy theory. So their defence is he's not anti-Semitic, just stupid. That's not exactly what you want to hear about a guy who wants to represent you in Parliament. But it turned out that the worst was yet to come. The male, who'd covered the initial comments in their Sunday paper, had been sitting on an audio recording where Azhar Ali appears to blame, quote, certain Jewish quarters in the media for the suspension of Andy MacDonald. Listen to this. It shouldn't have been suspended, right? Mm. It was suspended on what was said. And, you know, I know him really well, (laughs) and he's a solid Palestinian, pro-Palestinian supporter. The media, and some of the people in the media from certain Jewish uh, quarters, were given about what he said. Graham, you can't say yeah, this. Graham, you can't say this, but I'll say it. I've been to Israel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've been, been, you've been to oh, Israel. Been right? Yeah, he's been. The security is that strict from landing at the airport yeah. right, to your hotel to going into Masjid Aqsa or any other towns, yeah? yeah? If you go in Gaza. There's, I can't believe there is nowhere that Israel knows there's a border there. Exactly. There's a big buffer zone between yeah. Gaza and that. And that these people on paragliders, that they had no, no intelligence at all. The Egyptians are saying that they warned Israel 10 days two, earlier, two weeks, two weeks yeah. earlier. Americans warned them two, two weeks before. A day, two day before. A day before. There's something's, not, something's happening. Right? Netanyahu, right, deliberately, he was in political trouble. He's in, you know, right? He's, He's in political it. trouble. He cashed it. They deliberately, I believe that, and I'll say it, I've said it publicly, they deliberately took the security off. Yeah. They allowed the massacre, they and did. here's a massacre of yes. 1,200 innocent people, right? They allowed that massacre, and that, give them, that gives them the uh, green light to do whatever they bloody want. So just to be very clear, there is evidence to suggest that Israeli intelligence had been made aware that something was being planned from Gaza. What we don't know is why those warnings weren't heeded. So that is a bit of a black box. Maybe there was other intelligence coming in uh, disputing how important those warnings were, or maybe it was just a failure with the chain of command. Just saying this because there isn't concrete evidence to suggest that Netanyahu or the IDF or the Israeli government in general deliberately allowed the massacres to go ahead. The 
audio recording was apparently made at a Lancashire Labour event, and it's unclear when, but there are some suggestions that it may have been on the 31st of October last year. This, obviously, is incredibly embarrassing for Keir Starmer. Yesterday, he got his shadow cabinet to go out to bat for Azhar Ali, presenting the October 7th comments as a one-off. But here he is, blaming, quote, Jewish quarters, not the right-wing or the pro-Israel media, for Andy MacDonald being unfairly suspended. Late last night, Labour announced that they would be withdrawing their support from Azhar Ali's campaign in Rochdale. Now, he'll still be the Labour candidate in the by-election, but the party won't campaign or leaflet for him. And if Ali wins, he'll sit as an independent in the House of Commons. After being forced into a humiliating reversal, senior Labour figures tried to spin it as a demonstration of just how seriously Keir Starmer takes anti-Semitism. This is from the BBC's reporting. Labour's National Campaign Coordinator Pat McFadden said Mr Ali was suspended after more comments came to light. Mr McFadden said that the fact you have got very rare circumstances where a political party is withdrawing support for a candidate after nominations have closed showed Labour leader Keir Starmer was serious about rooting anti-Semitism out of the Labour Party. And here's what Keir Starmer had to say about it at a campaign event today in Wellingborough. This is from The Guardian. Certain information came to light over the weekend in relation to the candidate. There was a fulsome apology. Further information came to light yesterday calling for decisive action, so I took decisive action. It is a huge thing to withdraw support for a Labour candidate during the course of a by-election. It's a tough decision, a necessary decision, But when I say the Labour Party has changed under my leadership, I mean it. So just to be clear, Labour are claiming that they didn't know there was another male story coming down the pipeline. But that claim is now being put under a bit of scrutiny. Here's Lord John Mann, a former Labour MP rewarded by Boris Johnson with a life peerage on Nick Ferrari's LBC show this morning. Starmer needs to change uh, some of the people he's got around him because they failed to act. The, the, you know, the, it was known, it was known that there was more from Ali. That was known yesterday morning. That didn't suddenly come out yesterday evening. Um, how do I know? Someone told me. And it wasn't a journalist or someone in the media who told me. And uh, they should have acted more effectively. Was it someone locally who told you? Stammer. Well, this was this was someone in the in in the nose. They were in contact with as well. What John Mann is claiming is that Labour knew there was another male story coming out, but they defended Azhar Ali anyway. Whether that's true or not, it's clear the leadership tried to protect Azhar Ali in a way that they haven't other MPs who've been accused of anti-Semitism. Kate Ossimore is still sitting as an independent after having the temerity to describe what's happening in Gaza as a genocide after the ICJ ruling. And Andy MacDonald had the whip removed for calling for peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians from the river to the sea. When it comes to the left, Kistama's version of zero tolerance meant booting them out of the PLP, even if it was manifestly unfair. 
But when it comes to Azhar Ali, they tried to keep him as a Labour candidate even when it was clearly untenable. What's the difference? Well, Azhar Ali is very close to members of Keir Starmer's inner circle and he was a former advisor to Tony Blair. Simply put, there are different rules for Starmer's ideological opponents. This is what Martin Ford KC, the barrister who authored a report into how Labour handled racism complaints within the party, had to say on the Today programme this morning. Perception was the thing that concerned myself and the peers that assisted me. If you want a fair and transparent system, it has to deal with people consistently. He continued, I'm aware from discussions with some of the MPs within the party who might be described as more left-leaning that they feel when it comes to disciplinary action taken against them, things move rather slowly. But if you're in the right faction of the party, as it were, then things are either dealt with more leniently or more swiftly. Martin Ford lambasted Labour's handling of the Azhar Ali situation as, quote, shambolic, and suggested that he should never have been selected in the first place. So it's been a no good, horrible, very bad day for Keir Starmer then. But luckily, there are always those in the media who can be relied on to put the blame where it really belongs. Their whole focus will have been, we've got to get a candidate who's not a Jeremy Corbyn candidate. We've got to show we've broken from that. They choose this guy who is, you know, a Starmer loyalist, a Tony Blair loyalist, who was never a Corbynite, and they take their half the ball. Interesting emphasis there. Maybe, I don't know, looking at everything through the lens of factional manoeuvring doesn't actually get you the best candidates, or maybe Jeremy Corbyn really is to blame for everything. So, James, first things first, does Labour withdrawing their support from Azhar Ali make it more likely that they'll lose the Rochdale seat to George Galloway or maybe even Simon Danzig? I think Simon Danchuk's going to get a better vote this time than, than he did last time, put it that way. I think George Galloway is, is now, I don't know if he's a clear favourite, but he's certainly in contention. You've got two weeks uh, or so to the actual date of the election. You've got Labour who presumably won't even be campaigning in the most crucial parts of the election campaign, which is a bit at the end. And of course, uh, Galloway, I would imagine, will be putting out the call to get people out this weekend because people will have seen that this is the opportunity to send, and he'll present it like this, a clear message to Keir Starmer about Gaza in particular. So this is looking really pretty serious for Keir Starmer himself. I mean, whatever his friends in the media are saying, John Craig, who's a Sky News' chief political correspondent, was saying that this is his biggest crisis that he's faced. And of course, it's mostly just self-inflicted as these crises for Starmer keep being. Same thing with the 28 billion scrapping. They keep sort of wandering around thinking they're, they're you know, just sailing, presumably, into number 10 by this point uh, and stepping on rakes left, right and centre. In this case, it's got right to the heart of what his operation is and his entire strategy if there's one thing that Keir Starmer's defined himself as, it is, I am tough on this issue. And it's blown a whacking great hole in it and left the road open, I think, for George Galloway to to pull off another pretty sensational by-election victory. So Martin Ford said that Labour should implement a fair, consistent and transparent process for dealing with accusations of racism in the party. I think I might know the answer to this, but has that happened? 
Well, just talk to Martin Ford himself or listen to what he's been saying for quite some time now to anybody who'd listen. I mean, the fact that the Labour Party haven't really been listening. In fact, they've got reports going to the NEC patting themselves on the back and saying, we've implemented everything or nearly everything in the report, whilst the guy who was overseeing the whole thing and writing it. And it is really well worth a read. I mean, this is a thorough, systematic account of what was going wrong in Labour for a long period of time that pulls no punches, has no favours to any faction, to any part of it. It's really comprehensive, really good report. Martin Ford himself is saying progress has been slow, they've not done enough, this isn't happening. And what you see happening with this is exactly what Jeremy Corbyn, when he was leader of the Labour Party, was being accused of, was that processes that are supposed to be fair, transparent, aren't uh, subject to kind of factional abuse, aren't in fact operating like that. I mean, there's another problem here, of course, is they rush the process of selection. One suspects precisely to prevent any candidates on the left even getting a sniff of uh, selection in what is ought to be a safe Labour seat. But that's another issue for the factionalisation that's taking place around the leadership in this one. It's a car crash for them. It really and truly is. There's no other way to describe this thing. But it ties into a whole load of other deeper problems. And that is why I think in this case, John Craig, for example, has a point when he says this is one of the worst crises Starmer's faced. So much for Mr. Forensic. And some breaking news for you. Just a couple of hours ago, Guido Fawkes published a new audio recording of another Labour candidate. It was made at the same Lancashire Labour Party meeting as the recordings of Azhar Ali. This time, it was Graham Jones, the former MP for Hindburn, who's standing for Labour in the next general election. Fucking Israel again, you know. And I'm sure that all these people think that when they go home, but you will not get Israel over the line unless we go at them hard. Well, why is there British people in the uh, IDF? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, this has been raised, I'm going to take this yeah. up because we have a simple rule. They're allowed to get a flight there as well. You do, you, uh, um, unless, um, unless, unless there is a military alliance between us and that particular country, NATO or whatever, then... Uh, or, or, or an individual one, you should not be fighting, you, uh, no British person should be fighting for any other country. At all, full stop. It's full against stop. the law and you should be locked up. I've just got to point out that it's not actually against the law for British and dual nationals to fight in the Israeli Defence Force. But it's not unreasonable to think that it should be. The IDF maintains an illegal occupation of the West Bank. They've been imposing an illegal blockade on Gaza since 2007. And now the International Court of Justice says there's a plausible case that they're committing genocidal acts in Gaza. British citizens who breach international law, who perhaps even participate in war crimes, should be locked up. That's not controversial, in my view. Here's how the reaction to Graham Jones's comments is playing out. Sarah Britcliffe, the Tory MP for Hindburn, said this to Guido Fawkes. At a time of increasing community tensions, it is the responsibility of all of us in politics to be careful with the language we use. We need immediate answers from those seeking to represent Hindburn about whether they challenged Mr. Ali. Creating community cohesion is essential. And this, quite frankly, does the complete opposite. This is a clear example that the Labour Party under Sir Keir Starmer has not changed at all. And this is from the Jewish Labour Movement, who posted a statement on Twitter. Graham Jones's comments about British-Israeli Jews are appalling and unacceptable within the Labour Party. We are dismayed that Jones was not only a bystander at the meeting where Azhar Ali made his anti-Semitic comments, but sought to inflame tensions further. 
Over the past two days, the importance of a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism in Labour has become clearer than ever. Labour must stand Graham Jones down as a parliamentary candidate and conduct a disciplinary investigation. About an hour ago, Labour announced that they had suspended Graham Jones pending an investigation. It's unclear whether that's for his language, he does say fucking Israel, or that he gets it wrong to say that it's illegal to fight in the IDF, or that he's in favour of making it illegal to fight in the IDF. James, what do you reckon? Graham Jones isn't exactly a left-winger, but do you back him on this one? Well, there's a clear difference between what the, the two candidates or would-be candidates have said. What Azar Ali did was retail a, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. The, the idea that Jews control the media in some sense is a long-standing anti-Semitic trope. What Graham Jones said was, okay, slightly misinformed on whether it's actually illegal or not, but actually a perfectly reasonable opinion to have. I mean, he, he put it in sort of terms of, of uh, terms of, of fighting illegal wars and, and the rest of it. And, uh, and that's quite a reasonable opinion to have. You can agree or disagree with it, but it's not anti-Semitic. Mixing the two up starts to confuse the issue of how you take on anti-Semitism. You're starting to blur the lines here. Now, his language is certainly intemperate, and perhaps you can say, okay, we're going to suspend and investigate for this. And perhaps as a prospective parliamentary candidate, you want to be a bit more careful about how you talk about things. But you're not talking about two different offences here, and you're not talking about something that serves anyone well by mixing the two up together. Let's move on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has taken part in a live Q&A for GB News. The appearance was widely seen as an attempt to win back voters switching to the Reform Party in the polls. Lots of Reform politicians work for GB News. Farage founded the party and he now has a daily GB News show. Richard Tice is the current leader and he's a regular on GB News. And this was Sunak's response to an audience who had once voted Tory and now back to reform. In one sense, I can completely appreciate your frustration, right? And that's because it's been a tough couple of years, right? When we go through the things that we've been through as a country, as I said, energy bills, more than doubling, right? again, starting to come down, the economic strain that that's put on all your family budgets, the impact of COVID on backlogs, NHS, waiting for appointments, like all of those things are, are real things that will cause you and everyone else an enormous amount of frustration. And I can completely understand that. But I think fundamentally, what you want and what I want are the same. Right? What I talked about at the beginning, the things that I'm focused on, right, the values that are important to me, I think are things that we probably share. And all of you who clapped, I'd probably say the same thing. Right? I think actually we want the same things for our country. We share the same values, whether that's on controlling spending, cutting your taxes to ease the cost of living, making sure that we have strong borders and we tackle illegal migration, Right? These are things that we have in common. These are all things that we want. And what I'd say to you and everyone else is the next election is a straightforward choice. At the end of it, either Keir Starmer or I am going to be prime minister. Right? And a vote for anyone who is not a conservative candidate is simply a vote to put Keir Starmer into number 10. So the question for you and everyone else who clapped, I completely appreciate your frustration is who do you want to see in government after the next election? Who do you think it's more likely to deliver on the things that you care about? Right? You talked about those traditional conservative things, right? Controlling spending, cutting taxes, a strong economy, bringing mortgage rates and inflation and borrowing down, strong borders, police on the streets, right? All those things that you care about, who's more likely to deliver them? Because it's certainly not Keir Starmer, right? Now, 
That's the pick, that's the thing, and that's the choice, right? A vote for anyone who is not us is a vote for him, right? We've just seen over the last, I mean, last few days, you've seen what's happened, right? Keir Starmer has been running around for the last year trying to tell everybody, okay, the Labour Party's changed, right? Well, look what just happened in Rochdale. A candidate saying the most vile, awful conspiracy theories. So vote for me because Labour believe in conspiracy theories. Of course, GB News is no stranger to conspiracies, and neither was their audience. My name is John Watt, and I'm one of the COVID vaccine injured in this country. I want you to look into my eyes, Rishi Sunak, and I want you to look at the pain, the trauma, and the regret I have in my eyes. We have been left with no help at all. Not only am I in here that's vaccine injured, there's another man over there whose life's been ruined by that COVID-19 vaccine. I know people who have lost legs, amputations. I know people with heart conditions like myself, Rishi Sunak. Why have I had to set up a support group in Scotland to look after the people that have been affected by that COVID-19 vaccine? Why are the people who are in charge, who told us all to do the right thing, have left us all to rot and left me and the thousands and the tens of thousands in this country to rot. Rishi Sunak looked me in the eye. When are you going to start to do the right thing? The vaccine damage payment scheme is not fit for purpose. In Scotland right now, according to the yellow card system, there are over 30,000 people that have had an adverse reaction to that vaccine. And okay, deaths. J John, thank you very much indeed for your question. It's you for you to start doing the right thing, you've, Mr. Rishi Sunak, and the rest. You've, you've, you've made a really strong point, John. Prime Minister. Yeah, John, well, look, I'm very sorry to hear about your personal circumstances, and you said someone over here also seems to have suffered by the similar, by a similar thing. Now, obviously, I, I don't know about the individual situation that you're in. We're silenced, Well, I don't... We are silenced. We are the most silenced people in this country. It's important to be clear that there aren't tens of thousands of people who've suffered serious injuries from COVID vaccines or who have been left to rot, as that man said. In total, nine people in Scotland have died as a result of the COVID vaccine. 17,000 people died of COVID. Of course, that's not to say that the man in question might not have been seriously affected, but his stats just weren't right. And where he might have got those bad stats? Well, one possibility is former GB News host Mark Stein. He was found to have broken Ofcom rules last year for presenting misleading information to the public, specifically information about COVID vaccines. And a current host, Neil Oliver, recently suggested COVID vaccines were causing what he called turbo cancer. Somewhat bizarrely, Ofcom decided that was okay. James, was it a good idea for Rishi Sunak to do this Q&A for GB News? It was a good idea for GB News to get him. I mean, this is a, it's still a prime minister um, and he's giving his seal of approval uh, to the programme and to his coverage. GB News have all sorts of ambitious plans to really muscle their way into uh, the election this time around. And that, by the way, I mean, let's be honest, that, by the way, is a big old fillip for reform uh, in that election campaign. So it's a big boost for them to get that kind of authority in the room to make them look like they're now an established, credible broadcaster that the prime minister has to go to. Uh, but it's a total mistake 
for Rishi Sunak, who is the prime minister, to have to go and do this. Like, that isn't the way around this works. He should be conducting himself as if he is the prime minister still, which he is, and therefore he should be uh, rising above uh, looking like he has to try and appeal to Reform UK. I mean, this is how, how the style of the thing works out. This is how conventional notions of authority and how you appear and all the rest of it play themselves out. It's a sign of his weakness, I would say, and a certain amount of desperation that he's there doing this instead. Because look, you can see just from the clip, the reaction he had to, to that guy, uh, the attempt to try and empathize with people suffering, the rest of it. He's not actually that good at this sort of specific thing of relating to like normal people about their concerns. And this is kind of something you're going to have to do in that sort of audience, as well as answering the questions, thinking on your feet and all the rest of it. That's how it's set up. And he's not that good at it. It's not a real mistake for him, but a big old coup for GB News. I get the sense that Rishi Sunak just wasn't cut out for politics. He doesn't seem comfortable when he's engaging with real-life human beings or indeed paying to fill up his car with petrol. And maybe he should have just stuck with Silicon Valley, you know? Would get him out of our hair, at least. The audience in the room didn't seem too inspired by Sunak either. Madam, any thoughts on that? Have you changed your mind on Mr Sunak? Um, I've not changed my mind. I'm just still very undecided. I wasn't very impressed with... What was, were the answers that were coming back? So, yeah, still undecided. And you, sir? I thought Rishi was very polished, professional. I thought he was very courteous. I thought the audience were very courteous, apart from a couple of exceptions, where I feared for my life a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I thought he came across quite, quite well-meaning, decent kind of guy. Will you vote for him? I'm undecided. I think it's lost. If I'm totally honest, he's, uh, you know, he's trying his best, but I don't think the Conservatives can win at the next election. Sir, can the, can, as a PM, convince you to vote for him? He's, hmm, he's convinced me to think about it. But what I really am thinking about at the moment is, where do I hand in my expenses claims? <laughs> hey, don't ask me, sir. I'm a near journalist. <laughs> I like someone who's got their priorities in the right order. Like, look, before we get into this whole election election... Where do I hand in my expenses claims? I mean, that didn't seem like a group of people who were fired up by him. You know, the best that Rishi Sunak maybe got was a little bit more of a hearing than he may have had before he conducted this kind of town hall style meeting. But no one left with real faith in him. I mean, from your perspective, is there anything that he could do to turn things around? Or is he a doomed captain on a sinking ship? I think he can do what he is doing, which is um, sitting tight and waiting for Labour to keep tripping over their own shoelaces, right? Because that's actually happening on a fairly sort of frequent basis at the minute. And given the last sort of few weeks, it's not an unreasonable bet that actually a few more things will go wrong for them somewhere down the line. I mean, that's what it's starting to, to look like here. He's also got work in his favour. We'll see what happens with the economy and interest rates over the rest of the year. You can always cling on to the hope that this might actually turn around and start to look a bit better. Real wages uh, are rising in Britain. Perhaps the Bank of England will cut interest rates further. These sort of things could happen in the next few months. Not really in his hands uh, at this point in time. Probably if you really decide to work it, maybe you could try and do what he's doing, which is going off and attempting to appeal to reform UK voters and the rest of it. But honestly, if you're Rishi Sunak, this doesn't really work for you. It doesn't work for how people perceive you, where you're coming from, the kind of politics you've spoke about in the past, what you said in order to get elected as prime minister uh, back in the day when he was standing that it doesn't add up to a package that's particularly convincing and probably isn't the sort of thing that you could do with the kind of gusto and conviction that perhaps somebody like uh, Boris Johnson would have been able to do. Tories, by the way, 
for all his faults and all the rest of it, I, I feel like Boris Johnson would have done a better job, for example, with that uh, town hall style meeting than Rishi Sunak managed. When the most you get out of it is like, as the guy said, he's kind of trying his best. He seems sort of nice, you know. That's not a ringing endorsement. That's not like let's make this uh, let's make this guy prime minister for another four or five years. And it's not there. The most warm emotion I've ever felt towards Rishi Sunak is a kind of pity where I can easily imagine him having been on the receiving end of an mm -hmm. atomic wedgie when he was a kid. And that's the best I can think of him, is that once upon a time he may have been a bully child. It's not really prime minister material. Let's move on to our next story. As Americans debate whether Joe Biden is too old to be re-elected president, European leaders are more worried about his opponent. This was Donald Trump at a rally on the weekend. One of the presidents of a Big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. So if European countries don't spend enough on defense, not only will the Americans not come to their aid, but Donald Trump will actively encourage the Russians to attack them. The amount that European NATO members spend on their militaries is a long-standing bugbear of Donald Trump. All NATO members are supposed to dedicate at least 2% of their GDP on defence, but this is the reality. In absolute terms, US military spending dwarfs every other NATO member. I mean, probably helps that you're not spending on healthcare. They spend $750 billion a year on defence, which is 3.5% of their GDP. The UK is the next biggest spender at about 60 billion or 2% of our GDP. We are somewhat rare in hitting the target though. Countries like Germany, France, Italy, Spain and the Netherlands spend a lot less than 2% of their GDPs on defence. So that's the situation Trump is protesting. But calling for a Russian invasion goes far beyond what the former president has before said. Responding to that call, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, put on a brave face. Let me be sarcastic. During this campaign, we will see and listen to many things. Let's be serious. NATO cannot be a, a la carte military alliance. Cannot be a military alliance that works depending on the humor or the president of the U.S. on those days. It's not, yes, now, yes, tomorrow, no, it depends, who are you? Now, come on, let's be serious. Did he want to be sarcastic or did he want to be serious? Personally, I didn't get it. The more important question is this, though. Should Europeans be worried about Trump abandoning NATO? This is a story we will be covering an awful lot on Navarra Media, particularly because the left has always been divided on NATO. The Stop the War wing, for instance, is very, very sceptical. But membership of NATO has long been central to the Labour Party, even under Jeremy Corbyn. So I'd like to know in the comments, what's your view? As ever, all the work we do is only made possible by your very kind donations. And if you would like to become a monthly supporter, go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. 
What we traditionally ask for is the equivalent of one hours of your wage per month. So we can keep working around the clock to give you the analysis and the news that you just can't find anywhere else. But if you can't afford one hour's worth of your wage a month, don't worry, we will accept literally anything and we don't have a paywall anyway. Let's move on to our next story. This pundit life is a dangerous game. Josh Simons, the director of a think tank associated with the right wing of the Labour Party, discovered the perils of playing reputational roulette last night. On LBC, he had this to say about the government's Rwanda plans. My main concern with Rwanda is not actually the the human rights implications of it and the focus of this report. My main concern is that uh, it's a complete waste of money and it won't work. It won't stop the boats. You know, that was the thing that Rishi said, judge me by, stop the boats. He's failed. He keeps failing. And meanwhile, he's spending £8 million a day and so far 400 million quid. Um, So my problem with Rwanda is that it it won't work. So the hard question is, what are you going to do instead? Um, And I think that... While the Conservatives say that they are being tough on the borders and beefing up the policing and so on, I have seen no real evidence that that is in fact what they are doing with the kind of commitment and clarity that they need to. I mean, you know, why don't you send the smuggler gangs and put them on the barge that, you know, has been set aside for the asylum seekers to do it? And then, you know, ship the barge up to the north of Scotland for all I, you know, who, who cares? It's rare that you hear someone make a comment that manages to dehumanise both asylum seekers and the entire nation of Scotland. And if I'm being kind, I think what Josh was kind of going for there was a Malcolm Tucker tribute act. Tough, cynical, in touch with the ruthless cut and thrust of real politique. But it just came off as, well, nasty. He chucked human rights out of the window and presented Scotland as little more than a dumping ground for so-called undesirables. Normally, I wouldn't want to stick the boot into someone who's made a tit of themselves on national media because, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. But according to his LinkedIn, Josh Simons previously stood as a Labour candidate. So I don't think it's unfair to say that he's an ambitious political operator, perhaps hoping to build a bit of a public profile and wield influence in the limelight as well as behind the scenes. In fact, this is what he had to say for himself on Twitter just a couple of days ago. Responding to a tweet from Christabel Cooper, he says, Politics is the art of how the 1% who obsess over politics persuade and influence the 99% who don't. And unfortunately for Josh, his appearance on LBC was generating the wrong kind of buzz. This is a tweet from Kevin Schofield, political editor at Huff Post. A Scottish Labour source says, I've no idea who he is, but he should fuck off. And here's a follow-up. A London-based Labour source said, we do know who he is, and we couldn't agree more. So if politics is the art of persuasion, then this is the equivalent of that Spanish lady who tried to restore a painting of Christ and made him look like a thumb. After sharing and then deleting the snippet in question, Josh Simons issued an apology on Twitter. He wrote this. Following my comments on LBC last night, I apologise for any negative insinuation about Scotland. I'm half Scottish. I love the country and it is where much of my family comes from. 
It was a poorly judged comment made in jest and doesn't reflect my views or the views of the Labour Party. I was seeking to draw attention to the immorality of housing asylum seekers who are fleeing persecution on a barge while smuggler gangs get off free under the Conservatives. Now, I do have a bit of sympathy for someone who comes under fire for communicating something badly. That's absolutely something every human does at some point or another. And for most people, it's just not being broadcast around the nation for people to laugh at. We all make mistakes. We all misspeak. And you've got to give some grace for that. The thing I take issue with, though, is the second part of his apology. Quote, I was seeking to draw attention to the immorality of housing asylum seekers who are fleeing persecution on a barge. That is categorically not what he said. His exact words were that his, quote, main concern with Rwanda is not actually the human rights implications of it. He was objecting to the Rwanda policy on the grounds of cost and effectiveness and explicitly disregarding the actual impact on the rights of asylum seekers. So this is a classic political apology. You're not saying sorry for what actually happened. You're using the apology to try and paint what you said in a more favorable light. But James, am I being harsh here? What do you reckon? Was this a genuine flub that he's very, very sorry for? Or a case of trying to walk back something that he really meant? I suspect he didn't really think that we should be sending people to Scotland. I think that's a sort of daft thing that floated into his head. Exactly as you say, you know, you're going for this sort of the damage, by the way, that Malcolm Tucker has done to sort of Westminster politics is really quite impressive. He's slightly sort of. Include myself in this description. Uh, nerdy characters going around thinking that there's something that they're not is not exactly helpful to the conduct of politics, even slightly. And the swaggering macho nonsense that comes attached to it, not good. So, you know, he's keying into a bit of that. I'm sure the apology, the first part, was pretty sincere to, to that extent. But you're absolutely right. The second bit, where it's like, oh, actually, you know, wasn't it immoral, really? Well, yeah, it is actually. And you should, in fact, have said that in the interview, and we'd all be a lot more uh, sympathetic about the whole thing if you have. That is, by the way, not just the presentational part of you have people pretending too many people thinking they're Malcolm Tucker wandering around SW1. But the issue here is that you have a politics underneath that in which the human rights parts of what we might be doing, the concern for the wider world about what we might be doing is stripped out and everything is reduced down to a series of sort of fairly brutal calculations as presented by chunks of mostly uh, a bit of the, the press here rather than reflecting wider concerns, I suggest, to the population. And that is what we all have to talk about and we have to address every question on these terms. This is something that the Labour front bench have done, by the way. They've been fairly insistent about saying, well, we don't like Rwanda uh, because it won't work and it's expensive. Okay, but you really ought to be saying something about the fact that, look, this is just plain old immoral and this is something that we should be opposing because of that. And actually, this is something a whole bunch of people will agree with you on and it's a better way of framing the whole question and gets you out of this toxic argument with the Tories about, well, okay, what if we found a really cheap country to send people to instead? You know, it's just not a good way to do the politics. And, and that's what I think Josh was, was playing along with here. I'm sure his apology is kind of sincere in that sense. And not just in the sense of, oh, dear, he's messed up, I better say something. I think he's probably sincerely thinks he was a bit of a daft thing to say. But you're right. It's the second part of it where he tries to re-spin it back into like, actually, I'm a nice guy, really. It's like, come on, it's a bit of a stretch. I want to pick up on what you said about this sort of foundational cynicism 
in Westminster politics mm-hmm. because a phrase that often gets used, particularly by pundits and pollsters and journalists, is smart politics. And it's always, well, you may not like this, but it's smart politics. It's smart politics to go on the cost of Rwanda rather than the morality of Rwanda. It's smart politics to ditch any pledges like £28 billion on green investment every year before the election so it can't hurt you in a campaign. These things are smart politics. You may not like it, but it's smart politics. Is there some truth in that, that it's smart politics and ultimately it will ensure electoral success? Or is there a kind of feedback loop going on, like a negative feedback loop? You praise politicians for things that voters ultimately don't like, and it drives a deeper disenchantment with what Westminster politics is capable of doing. Exactly. Look, you kind of answered your own question there, Rash. I think it's the latter one. But look, this isn't smart politics. What you actually end up doing, particularly if you're Labour, and this is where it starts to look really quite stupid politics, is that, okay, you say we're going to oppose this thing on the basis of costs and not talk too much about the fluffy human rights stuff. Because if you're calculating, you think, okay, this might give us a bit of an easier ride in bits of the press and we don't have to do a fluffy argument. And by the way, there's a focus group in some parts of the country where there's a very specific group of people who say very specifically, this is what they think. And we're going to try and talk directly to them. So it's smart politics to do that, except it isn't because exactly as you say, you set up the argument, you accept the terrain of the argument that the Tories have put it on. This is a problem. Okay, if it's a problem, we need to deal with it. What's the best way to deal with a problem? Cheapest way to deal with a problem is the best way to deal with it. So you just set that whole thing up and you can't get out of it. You don't shift the terrain. You're accepting their framing. You're accepting the nonsense. I mean, why on earth are we even talking about Rwanda flights? Who cooks this one up? Where did this come from? That suddenly we have to all think that, oh, isn't it you know, something to discuss? Maybe we should send a bunch of people who've never been to Rwanda to Rwanda who are desperately fleeing other parts of the world. And suddenly this is a thing we all have to talk about. And it's never stepping back and saying, what on earth are we doing even discussing this? Why has this madness appeared? No, no, no. Oh, we can't do this. It's expensive. Maybe we find a cheap way to, to do the same thing that's cruel and horrible because that's just how we conduct it. This isn't smart politics. This is the politics that undermines yourself. You had exactly I think, a version of this with the £28 billion Farago the uh, Labour got itself into uh, over the last week or so. Look, this was a popular policy. Actually doing stuff on climate change is popular, even, and in some ways especially, more so than the national average. If you look at the polling in those so-called red wall seats that Labour needs to win back in the north of England, because you can present it to people as this is doing something about uh, your electricity and energy bills. This is doing something to create jobs. This is a good story about reindustrialization of places that being deindustrialized, you can do all of this. It's popular. But they didn't do that. They did the smart politics thing and say, oh, well, we don't want to row about how much we're spending. We don't want the Tories to attack us for this. So we're going to flap about like nobody's business for a good 12 months, stoke up an entire story, allow briefings to run off into the distance against this figure. People like Ed Balls, by the way, popping up to say, what a terrible thing that we're spending money on climate change. Duh, what's the point of that? Right, Allowing this story to develop, briefing against Ed Miliband, the shadow cabinet uh, person most associated with the policy. And then finally, right at the end, just go, oh, well, it's gone now. Uh, we can't possibly do it which is the worst of all possible worlds, exactly as we've seen, because the Tories just still have this £28 billion figure to frighten people with, and Labour have no defence, because they're not actually doing it. So you can't say, oh, but this means loads of jobs. It's just a big, scary figure you were talking about. And they set up a story that they're totally indecisive and can't be trusted, because Keir Starmer says one thing now, says, yeah, we're definitely, definitely, definitely going to do this, and then a week later he says we're not. So it's just the smart politics there is completely stupid. It's creating a disaster, a smaller disaster than I think some of the ones they're hitting at the minute for Labour, 
but nonetheless a disaster for them. And, you know, if you're the Green Party, you put it in pure electoral terms, if you're the Green Party in England and Wales right now, you'd be rubbing your hands in glee at this and thinking about some of those Labour seats that you are now in a serious position to contend for, because you have something clear to say on the doorstep, and Labour does not. And they thought they were going to gain something electorally out of this, and it's been the exact opposite. Same thing with Rwanda, same thing with a whole load of this so-called smart politics and the Westminster clever thing. And the worst thing about it, I think, finally, is this hypocrisy, where you know some of the people saying this stuff, oh, well, we have to do it, not because we really think it, it's these horrible people over there who think it, and we have to go and appeal to them. Well, let's not do that. Why don't you have people who say what you actually think, and then try and persuade someone else of what you actually think? Why not do politics that way around, rather than this ridiculous scrabbling around to try and find that one marginal vote voter with particularly obnoxious views on an issue, and then you go and appeal to them. It's absolute nonsense. It's kind of pathetic. The hypocrisy of it is disgusting, and uh, it's time we were rid. You say that smart politics is actually stupid, but I come back at that and I say, well, you can't spend money on a dead planet, so it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. The organisation that Josh Simons represents has a knack for getting very close to power. Labour Together was founded as a think tank in 2015, but after Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the opposition, it transformed itself into an outfit dedicated to wresting the party back from the left. Since then, it has become a vehicle for the party's right wing. This is from Politico. The think tank maintains a low profile in Westminster, but has close links to Labour HQ, Those who run it are in regular contact with senior officials, including campaign director Morgan McSweeney, strategy director Deborah Mattinson, and policy chief Stuart Ingham. It's also doing some serious fundraising, having amassed more than £1.8 million in donations since Starmer became leader in April 2020. The article continues... It also works with a number of other shadow cabinet ministers and their teams. Nearly all the MPs credited with building Labour together since 2017, Reeves, West Streeting, Shabana Mahmood, Steve Reid, Bridget Phillipson, Lucy Powell and Lisa Nandy, now sit in Starmer's top team. We work closely with them to make sure that what they're doing matches up with what Labour HQ is doing, a shadow cabinet minister said. I'll be surprised if they weren't working with the majority of shadow cabinet teams. According to The Guardian, Labour Together's plan was years in the making. Here's what they wrote in October last year. After securing funding from a wide range of donors united in their opposition to Corbyn, Labour Together focused on polling party members to understand their values and attitudes and map out their policy priorities. Its research split the membership into three. Instrumentalists, who would vote for whichever leader would be likely to win the next election, intended to be older and joined Labour in 1997 or just before. Idealists made up the middle 40% of the membership and were often younger and projected onto Corbyn what they wanted him to be. Ideologues rejoined the party to vote for him after having initially signed up in the 1970s and 80s before leaving or being kicked out. The data suggested that idealists made up two-thirds of Corbyn's coalition, the ideologues making up the final third. With this information, Labour together decided that any successor to Corbyn would need to win over all of the other group, the instrumentalists, and peel off at least a third of the idealists. So what Labour together did was get a load of donors to back their work profiling the membership so that they could design a leadership pitch that would get someone into the top job. 
To do that, they needed someone who would tell the membership that they supported left-wing policies and hadn't noisily tried to bring down Jeremy Corbyn between 2017 and 2019. Enter Keir Starmer. What we know now is that all of those left-wing policies, the 10 pledges, have turned out to be basically disposable. The Keir Starmer running to be Prime Minister is very different from the Keir Starmer who ran to be Labour leader. This is from The Guardian. Another said, Morgan McSweeney, understood more than anyone else that for Labour to be voter-focused and win, the party first had to be membership-focused, change the leadership and then restructure the party. His eyes were always on the prize. Some recall him telling them to stop complaining about the think tank not adopting particular policies because that's not the goal. At the time, Morgan McSweeney was director of Labour Together. What that meant was that it was always the plan to pitch left to the membership and then shift rightwards afterwards. So, James, you were actually a commissioner of a Labour Together report, which was a post-mortem of the 2019 election result. In hindsight, we may be a bit over-optimistic about their willingness to work with the left. No, not at all. There's a couple of things there. One is that, look, you always, if you're asked to, or you get the opportunity to have the argument for your politics, you should take that opportunity. It's why you get people from Navarra, uh, for instance, going off onto GB News or talk radio or these sort of more obviously not particularly ideologically aligned uh, platforms that you go and uh, try and deal with. So that's the first bit. You should always try and take these opportunities wherever they're there. Second bit is that the report that was put together, I think it's a very comprehensive, very detailed, like it's a really good bit of research, the conclusions of which are basically that what Labour should do to win next time to cement its lead and to win comfortably, um, particularly against the Tories as they were in 2020 and onwards with Boris Johnson and the rest, was to do more or less what Jeremy Corbyn did, which is all the popular stuff on increasing public spending, on a big offer on green spending, on doing something about redistribution, making the welfare state work. That's what Labour should be doing. This is what it needed to do to rebuild its coalition. If that report had been stuck to, then at the very least, we'd still have that £28 billion sitting there. There'll be that in Labour, along with a whole load of other left-wing things. Rather strikingly, the report didn't actually get paid much attention by the leadership. And Labour together itself, of course, is a rather different organisation now. The staff have all changed entirely. Josh Simmons was brought in maybe two years ago to oversee the thing. And that 2019 report, with the recommendations, the report on the 2019 election, with those recommendations that Labour needed to stick to, the core of the Corbyn program has been removed from its website. You won't be able to find it if you go and look on their website now. So the whole thing's been changed. Um, it's been repositioned as a far more overtly sort of Starmerite think tank. I think this causes some problems because one of the things that's very striking about Starmer, the people around him, the politics he espouses is it's kind of anti-intellectual, right? This isn't really about big thoughts about the state of the world. This isn't like Blairism. This isn't like New Labour. New Labour spent a long period of time trying to grapple with ideas like globalization, what was happening to the world, what was happening to social democracy in Britain and Europe, how Labour's coalition was changing, you know, just big conceptual stuff. People like Professor Anthony Giddens from the LSE as well as as a close advisor to Blair. 
Who does Starmer have? It's not there. What's his think tank doing? Well, it turns out his director's kind of going in LBC and saying some not very smart things about Scotland and Rwanda, right? So it's not really it's not really pulling together in the way that you might have seen in the early 1990s with Blair, with the think tanks around Blair and Brown at the time, much as I'm sure the people around Starmer really want to think that they're simply reproducing what Blair and Brown did. They're not. And I think what's happening with Labour Together is a bit of a symptom of that. Well, thank you, James, so much for joining me tonight. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.